members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as always, we're asking as we consider this story for insight and understanding into who you are and to who we are and into the relationship that you're calling us into with you, with ourselves, and with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're still in that time when we're... Uh, reflecting in a very particular way on the implications of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And so today we turn to the events and the aftermath of Jesus' ascension as the newborn church is growing and developing, and we look at Stephen. Stephen is one of the great examples of speaking truth to power in the New Testament. His speech to the powerful religious leaders known as the Sanhedrin in his day, was unhindered by the fact that he knew that speaking to this group of people could have very negative impacts for his own life. Now, to get to the full story of Stephen and why this dramatic uh, telling in uh, Acts chapter 7 is what it is, we have to go back a little bit to Acts chapter 6 and see what was uh, going on. And so the deal was this. You had the disciples who had been with Jesus and had spent time with him and had uh, walked and talked with him for three and a half years. And uh, they were out teaching and sharing and, and going over all, all over the, uh, the world of that day, uh, talking about the implications of what Jesus had done and who Jesus was. And so they were very committed to this idea of what they called uh, preaching the word. Uh, but there were practical uh, needs as communities grew up uh, in, uh, in the area that they were ministering to. And so they would move on, and then little communities would be developed, and there were practical needs in those communities. And so uh, the group of believers got together, and they said, we've got these issues, and the, the apostles, uh, they knew the issues. And so in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, we read this. So the 12 uh, disciples, so they're 12 again, by the way. You had 11. Judas uh, died, and they elected a new uh, disciple. And so the 12 gathered all the other disciples together, or all the other followers together, and they said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to uh, wait on tables. This was not a pejorative thought. They were just like there are practical needs in the communities, and our job, we're very clear on what their job was, to communicate uh, to the world about what Jesus had done, and so they needed practical help. And so they said, let's choose seven people from among us who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility over to them, 
and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So we need, we have some practical needs as communities are developing and we need help. This proposal pleased the entire group and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And so he with six others, they became what was called deacons or servants and their job was to again serve the needs of uh, the community. Acts 6, 8 says this, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. So he was doing incredible things, in fact, things that were miraculous in his work and his practical work for the communities that were going. Now the religious leaders, uh, the established religious leaders, were not happy about what was happening with this group of disciples and about the work of Stephen uh, in particular. And so in Acts chapter 6, verse 12, we read this. Uh, the religious leaders stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And so you have this, uh, this conflict between those uh, in the religious group who believed in the work of Jesus and what he had done and those who were not up with Jesus, okay? And so the religious leaders, they're not up with Jesus and they're not up with what's going on with uh, these, these disciples and then now the deacons and these new communities that are surrounded by the work of Jesus. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. This is the, the political religious body that was overseeing uh, things in the in first century Israel. Okay, so they seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. So they're basically making the same accusations that were made against Jesus himself, that he's speaking against the holy place, in other words, Jerusalem and, and the temple in particular, because the Sanhedrin, this is their headquarters, and so they're saying Stephen is he's saying things against the, the temple. Same accusation that was made against Jesus. This fellow never stopped speaking against, against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses has handed down to him. Anytime you bring up uh, Moses, that's, gonna, that's like a trigger warning. And so the idea that uh, someone could be speaking against Moses, that is triggering. They knew that, so they're going to say, Stephen is speaking against uh, Moses. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. These accusations against Stephen has been made. He's against the, the temple. He's against uh, Moses, and so everybody looks at Stephen, and the record says this, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Stephen is being accused of all of these things, and he's there amongst these people who are caustic, antagonistic against what he's doing, and his face is like a face of an angel. What that means, who knows? Maybe a, a calmness or something about him stood out. And so Acts 7.1, we read this. The high priest, so the leader of the Sanhedrin, asked Stephen, are these charges against you a true? Are the charges against you true? All the charges that he's against the temple and, and uh, that he's against the law of Moses. And no, so then Stephen uh, almost hilariously then proceeds to tell these, religious leaders and these lawyers 
who are very, very aware of the story of Moses. He goes and tells in detail the story of their patriarchs and specifically the story of Moses. And so we can imagine that I don't know if you've ever had someone you know, tell you a story that you already know very well, like you've never heard it before, and you're kind of like roll your eyes and like, yeah, I know this, and then they go into even more detail and you're like, I, I get it, I know. We can imagine the religious leaders are experiencing this, right? <laughs> they, they know better than anyone the story of the patriarchs and of Moses, and yet Stephen goes into this great detail about the story of the patriarchs and Moses. And then, he gets to the end of the story that they're very familiar with, and he turns the tables. This is Acts 7, 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people. He tells the story of Moses. <laughs> and then his ending is this. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. These are all trigger words for them, by the way. I mean, calling someone uncircumcised in that group, in that community, I mean, <laughs> your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Face like an angel. Even they identified it. But his words, are, they, they cut to the heart. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And so now he's connecting this to Jesus. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. And you who have received the law that was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. Yikes. He knew the stakes. He knew who he was talking to. He knew what the same group of people had already done to Jesus himself. And so the story of Stephen highlights the reality of the newborn church. That being a follower of Jesus required courage. Even meeting together in Jesus' name could be dangerous for them. It was a courageous act to meet in the name of Jesus. But standing in against injustice and truly embracing the teachings of Jesus requires a courage even today. It wasn't just something that was courageous in, in that day. If you're going to stand for what is right and you're going to speak against injustice, that's a courageous act today. Speaking out against oppression, uh, helping the disenfranchised, uh, embodying the good news, that's a courageous act even Today, because in this broken world, this world that we're told is still unfortunately ruled, ruled by the, 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 the accuser, the, the Satan, the Lucifer, in a world where he's still operating, uh, fighting for justice and doing what is right, is going to be an act of courage. And so Christians are compelled, those people who confess the Lord Jesus are compelled to act with courage. We're compelled to be courageous from the ancient prophets of old to Jesus himself, uh, to Stephen, to all the martyrs of the newborn church, courageousness was part of what it meant. It's part of the DNA of being a follower of Jesus. But living with courage is inherently challenging. Whether it's speaking up against unjust or unethical practices in your workplace, 
uh, rejecting popular opinions of family or friends, or even speaking out against religious people or religious systems that oppose the gospel that Jesus himself presented. Living courageously is fraught with peril. It's challenging to be courageous in this broken world. A job or promotion could be lost. Family or friends could be, uh, uh, you can be disengaged from them. You could lose your standing in your religious community. All of these are realities when we speak out against injustice and we act uh, courageously. This is the reality. It's not something that was just reserved for the first century and for Stephen. Uh, speaking against injustice and standing up for the disenfranchised is a courageous act today. And so that leads to our big question today. What is it that inhibits us from acting courageously, from being uh, courageous? You know, sometimes we're courageous. Sometimes we fall flat. What is it that inhibits us from being a courageous? Well, there's a lot of responses that uh, we could assert from that, but first we've got to look at the big one, and that is uh, social uh, pressure. Social pressure. We are social people. <laughs> we engage with others, and social pressure often impacts our uh, ability or our willingness to be courageous. Uh, People who are experts in social pressure say that there are four primary forms of social pressure. Conformity, groupthink, social identity, and fear of social consequences. Here's how they describe each of those. Okay, so confirm, so if you're in, you, you are a specialist in social pressure and how it impacts how a group interacts with being courageous. Here's the issue. So conformity is going against the norms or expectations of a so social Group. So you know, any social group, we develop norms and expectations. doesn't matter what kind. It could, could be a, a, a cultural group, an ethnic group. It could be a, a religious group. It could be a, a, just a general social group. There are norms and expectations that those social groups uh, establish, and going against those can be challenging. And so this is particularly evident in uh, religious communities. Right? Religious communities, uh, they have an expectation how we're all going to conform, whether it's a dress or uh, other aspects of what you do. And uh, going against that is challenging, or can be challenging, because there's expectation that everybody is going to conform. And so that is a social pressure. Groupthink is another uh, element of social pressure. You have a group of uh, coworkers and uh, they all start talking together. Maybe there is a, an issue of injustice or something uh, that needs to be dealt with unethically, uh, a behavior from the, the organization, and so the group get together and start thinking, you know, do we really want to rock the boat or cause unnecessary conflict? And so the group together kind of becomes this hive mind and starts making decisions that you as an individual might not make on your own. Maybe it even goes against your ethics. Maybe you feel compelled that you should speak out, but because the members of your, your tight group don't think that it should because they're going to rock the broke, uh, you, 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 you don't act courageously. Uh, the element of uh, social identity, this definitely affects our our. Uh, our willingness to act courageously, and it's part of a social pressure. We have an identity that is related not just to ourselves, but to other people. Again, this happens specifically in church communities. We want to maybe be identified in a certain way, we, we, and our identity has been developed by having a long-standing 
existence with a group. And so the idea that uh, our identity could be changed or our relationship with the group could be changed, that inhibits our ability to, or our willingness to be create, to be courageous. And finally, there are those fears of the consequences. What is going to happen if I step out and act courageously? What is the group going to think of me? So all of these are elements of the social pressure related to the question of why we are sometimes inhibited in acting uh, courageously. Okay, so secondly, what inhibits us from acting courageously? Uncertainty. We're not sure uh, what is going to happen or what the outcome is going to be of our courageous action. Is it going to make a difference? You know, if you are a part of, a, let's say, a global corporation and uh, you're maybe, you know, a, an important but maybe small part as a worker of that corporation and you see something that you feel like is unethical, you might wrestle with the implications. Is it really going to make a difference if you stand out and stand up and say, this is wrong, this is unethical? Or are they going to just you know, fire you and move on? Is it going to make any uh, difference? And so that uncertainty hinders our ability to act courageously because we're like, is it really going to make a difference if I say something, if I do something, if I speak out? And that uncertainty inhibits our willingness to be courageous. Uh, finally, <laughs> we're inhibited, and again, I know there are many other responses to this, but uh, I think this is a, a big one. Uh, we're inhibited in acting courageously because we lack uh, confidence. We lack confidence in ourselves. We're unsure of maybe what we believe. We think, when we say that, I think this is unethical. I think this is uh, unjust, but we're not exactly entirely sure what we believe and whether it's right or wrong. And so uh, that makes us uncertain and that uncertainty inhibits us from acting courageously. And so with all of these things and many more going against us, again, this um, idea of being courageous in this world is challenging to us. And so we're left with our final question today. How do we, with these realities in front of us, how do we? live courageously? How do we overcome social pressure, uncertainty, and our own lack of confidence maybe in what we believe? Uh, it's been said that courage isn't the absence of fear, but rather the ability to act despite it. And so how do we do that? How do we act? So there are strategies. I actually asked ChatGPT this question. How do you learn to act uh, courageously? Okay, so here is what uh, ChatGPT, you, you guys are all familiar. The sermons are basically AI now. So I'm just a robot and that, you know, the real Todd is uh, napping in the office and this is an AI. No, I, but I did ask ChatGPT uh, this question. How do you learn to act courageously? And they, I had some great responses actually. So here are, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, strategies for acting or learning to be courageous, developing courage. Okay, you ready? First of all, ChatGPT says, identify your values and beliefs. I actually think this is profound. You know, a lot of us are going about our, our lives and we're doing things and we haven't really critically thought of why we do what we do and why we believe what we believe. And so I think ChatGPT has it right on. 
we need to spend some time being thoughtful and reflecting on identifying our values and beliefs and where they came from. That is important. You know, just don't do something just because you were told to do something or you grew up doing something or evaluate that. Use your mind that God has given you to use some critical thought and explore your values and beliefs. So thank you, ChatGBD, for that one. Here's their second one. Start small. Start acting courageously in small ways. Identify things in which you can step out and uh, speak out, things that, you know, Maybe somewhat inconsequential, but that ability to develop uh, courage will be helpful. Surround yourself with support, ChatGPT says. Okay, surround yourself with other people who may be thinking about the same things and who are trying to act courageously themselves. Learn from your failures. Certainly, we've all had failures when it comes to acting courageously. There are times when we should have been more courageous, we should have done something, we should have said something, we should have supported someone, and we didn't. And so we got to learn from those failures, practicing self-care, making sure that our mental health is in a good place. These are great, I don't know, ChatGPT is doing a great job here, right? Okay. So these are the, the strategies. So, you know, I could say now, we got this good advice from ChatGPT, please go and do all of these things and you will uh, be courageous in this world. But you and I know <laughs> that uh, these strategies are great, but implementing them, again, is still incredibly difficult. And in fact, uh, you'll, you may put some of these practices in place, but the likelihood is you're gonna fall short. You're not always gonna be the courageous person uh, that you wanna be, even if you are practicing those things. And so that leaves all of us with an even deeper question, what more is there? Is it only some practical strategies to become courageous that I implement? Well, as a follower of Jesus, for those of us who embrace Jesus, we can say no. We have someone who has acted courageously for us. Jesus lived courageously for us. I think of the story in Matthew chapter 12. It involves Jesus' Sabbath observance. You know, if there was one issue that created a stir between Jesus and the religious leaders, it's how Jesus looked at the Sabbath. We, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists big fans of the, of the Sabbath, the idea of Sabbath. Jesus is a big fan of the Sabbath too, but his view of what the Sabbath was about is a lot different with what the religious leaders view of the Sabbath was. And this is manifested in a number of places, but particularly in Matthew chapter 12. This is the passage just before this. Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. And then he exemplified that by doing this. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. So going on from that place, he went into the synagogue. So he went to the place where the religious leaders spent a lot of their time, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, uh, the religious leaders asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they're setting Jesus up. Jesus has come to uh, a, a place uh, where, the, where there was social pressure to act in a certain way and do things in a certain way. Jesus knew that. He was very, very familiar with the social pressure. Okay, so he comes into this place with all this uh, social pressure, and now he's being tested by the religious leaders who were implementing these social pressures. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, won't you take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable 
is a person than a sheep. Therefore, it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And so the man stretched out his hand and it was completely restored. A miracle. <laughs> the, a, a man who's been, who, who's had his hand that's shriveled is now uh, healed. What, what, what would the ex, your expectation would be that everybody's excited and encouraged for the man, but of course, that's not what happened. The religious leaders were furious. And verse 14 says, the Pharisees, which was a, were a particular group, part of these religious leaders, one of the political and social and religious groups of the day, the Pharisees went out and plotted how to kill Jesus. You can make a pretty good case that it was Jesus' uh, understanding of how to keep the Sabbath that got him killed. All right, he heals the man. And so this is a person who is acting courageously. Jesus knew exactly what was gonna happen. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly where he was. He knew exactly who was testing him. And Jesus acted courageously. Because of Jesus' courage, we have hope that we too who embrace this Jesus can be filled with courage outside of ourselves, beyond our own ability to develop courage. Because Jesus acted courageously at all times, we have hope that we can become courageous too. God can fill us with courage. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we confess faith in the Lord Jesus, we have hope that God can do in us what we can't do for ourselves, despite some of our great strategies, we're going to fall short if we're only reliant on our strategies alone. But as we confess faith in the great God of the universe, the God who exhibited courage when he came here as a man, as Jesus, as we confess faith in him, we have hope that we too can be filled with courage and live as courageous people in this broken world. What the world needs today is more people who are willing to speak against injustice who are willing to stand with the disenfranchised, who are willing to, to, to speak out even against family or, or friends when we need to, when unethical things are happening and when justice is in, in danger. The world needs that, but it's not gonna come from our own power. Because we have a God who believes in justice and because we have a God who acted courageously in the work of Jesus, we have hope that as we confess faith in him, we too can be filled with courage. Jesus said this, this is Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 12. When you are brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities, he was talking to his disciples. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, those were the powers at be at day, at, in his day. When you are brought before the powers in your day, don't worry. Don't worry about how you would defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Don't worry. If you confess faith in what God has done through Jesus, you don't have to worry about, about saying the right thing or, or, or standing up for the right thing. God will give you the courage that you do not inherently have. This happened with Stephen, right? The, the text keeps saying the Holy Spirit was with him. The Holy Spirit was, was working in him. It didn't just say Stephen was a great guy on his own who had figured out how to act courageously. It says Paul, G, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. 
God gives us this as we confess faith in him. He gives us the spirit that allows us, that enables us to act courageously in this broken world. And so as we go out of this place, may we be filled with courage, courage that we don't uh, develop on our own, but courage that God gives us uh, through his spirit. May God do this in us today and make us the courageous people he's calling us to be. Amen.